Hello and welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. In this episode, Ben Watkins interviews philosopher Dr. Paul Moser. Dr. Moser is professor of philosophy at Loyola University, Chicago. Professor Moser has published over 80 articles and authored many books, including The Elusive God and The Evidence for God, Religious Knowledge Reexamined. Professor Moser's research interests include epistemology, metaphilosophy, and the philosophy of religion. The interview here touches on issues of religious epistemology and the hiddenness of God, and even a little bit of natural theology. But before we get to that interview, I want to make a request. Ben and I are looking to record an episode where we face and address your questions, comments, or criticisms. And so if you have such a question, using your laptop or your cell phone, record for us an audio message introducing yourself by your first name and then asking your question or making your comment or what have you. Then email that audio file to relaytheology at gmail.com. Now these comments or questions, they may be pertaining to a past episode or they may not. Uh, they should, of course, at least be relevant to philosophy of religion. Ben and I will then choose what we think are the most interesting clips and we'll discuss them and attempt to answer them. Now, without further delay, here is our interview with philosopher Dr. Paul Moser. We always like to start the episode by asking why philosophy or religion and to give a brief introduction of yourself and the sort of work that you do. I think philosophy of religion is valuable because it allows you to pursue many of life's deepest questions. Philosophy tends to uh, lead to deep questions if it's done right, and therefore leads to philosophy of religion, questions about ultimate reality. And questions about God, I suppose, are questions about ultimate reality, uh, whether or not God exists. So. I think it's a fruitful area for pursuing what we might call ultimate questions. What initially got you interested in philosophy of religion? What's uh, your story into academia, so to speak? <clears throat> when I was about uh, 15, I became taken with questions about God's existence, uh, connected with questions about the meaning of life. and the first step was to ask whether we could have knowledge in that area. So that led me into what philosophers call epistemology or the theory of knowledge. And uh, ever since then, I've been trying to make sense uh, not only of uh, epistemology, but to some of the ultimate questions that uh, depend on epistemology, questions about um, is reality ultimately personal? If so, what kind of personal agent, what kind of evidence should we expect for such an agent? So one thing led to another from uh, age 15 or so, and ever since then I've been taken with um, questions and problems in those areas. What are some of the things that you've written on in the philosophy of religion? Mainly religious epistemology, the question of what kind of evidence, uh, if any, should we expect of God if God exists? Um, how is that evidence related to experience? 
how is it related to traditional natural theology? How does it bear on ethics? I claim that we should expect the evidence to be ethically robust in a certain way. So um, these are largely questions about um, religious epistemology um, and they bear on uh, some old topics like divine hiddenness. Would God be a God who hides in some ways at some times from some people for positive purposes? Um, what should we uh, expect evidence to be like if God is um, occasionally hidden uh, or at least is uh, subtle and elusive? You've written um, a good deal on this argument. How do, how do you see that argument, um, if, if basically a ground-up view from it? Where, where, where do you start um, your approach to this problem at? Well, I started with... Um, what I think is um, a starting place um, for all questions in this area, namely, what should we expect God to be like if God exists? And in my own case, I start with the highest uh, raising of the bar possible by saying that God would be worthy of worship. So notice I say would be. I don't start by saying God exists and God is worthy of worship. That would just beg the question and be pointless. So instead I say, consider a concept of God that entails that God is worthy of worship. That's just a notion of God. Um, and that's important, I think, because what it gives you then uh, are certain features of God that you can test for. Uh, and you've put the bar at the highest level, so you can then ask later, if necessary, should we lower the bar to a a lesser notion of God, such as that of natural theology. Uh, so once you ask what God would be like if God is worthy of worship, you can start asking about the bearing of that notion of God on what's called divine hiding. And then the next question is, what is the hiding really like? Uh, is it the case that God is hidden in the sense that Nobody ever, at any place, at any time, has had an experience of God. Is God hidden in that way? Or does it seem to be more selective and occasional? And I think if you look at reports about religious experience, you have to say, there is no generalizable argument from divine hiddenness to anything near atheism. Because many people testify to religious experience of God, and we can't identify any defeaters of their evidence, of their experience. And if we can't, then claims to hiddenness seem autobiographical. So if I say, well, God is hidden from me, I'm making a claim about my own experience, and that may be true, but how am I going to generalize it to everybody else's experience? That's a tough order to fill because experience varies from person to person. And sure. there's no reason to expect that God would give uniform experience to all people. People are in different places with different purposes, with different interests. And God has different purposes for different people at different times. 
So there's a kind of complexity of the situation that's going to block any attempt to say, God is hidden from me, therefore God is hidden from everybody, therefore God doesn't exist. That's just not going to work. The, the psychological reality of religious experience is just too complex and varied. God is, if God exists and is worthy of worship, mm-hmm. God is an intentional agent. That is, okay. God intends to do certain things in relation to people. Now, some people may be receptive to that. Others won't be. And so God may give a certain religious experience in one case that God doesn't give to another person in a different case. And that leaves you with variability in religious experience. Now, here's where a lot of people go wrong. They assume that evidence for God is like scientific evidence. So they assume that it's publicly shareable and shared. So that all I have to do is somehow present it and everybody will have the religious experience or evidence uh, that um, God has given. But that's a false assumption. Evidence doesn't have to be uh, publicly shared or even shareable in that way. Now, when someone like Dawkins says, let's treat the hypothesis that God exists as if it's a scientific hypothesis, and he says that in The God Delusion, you want to say, well, that wrecks the whole project. If you require God and claims about God's existence to become part of scientific exploration, you may be dooming the project from the start, and I claim that you are. Okay. Um, Schellenberg focuses a good deal on what he calls the openness of of God. So whereas um, you focus on the worthy of worship portion of God, he focuses a good deal on uh, the concept of God as a perfectly loving being. Mm -hmm. And so he thinks that being a perfectly loving being would imply that a divine person would always be open to relationship with any finite person. Do you push back on his claim there or would you uh, push back on other claims? What I've done in, in one exchange with him in a Blackwell collection is note that it's certainly right that worthiness of worship entails being perfectly loving because it entails moral perfection. The big question is, what is it to be perfectly loving? Now, I claim that if you're perfectly loving, timing is crucial. You must honor the agency of a human to a certain extent. Otherwise, you won't have an agent. And that means you must honor their freedom to a certain extent. But in that case, you can't be coercive of a human will relative to God uh, or you're extinguishing the agent. But if you honor freedom, then you have to honor that some people may not be ready for a divine intervention. So even if God is open to a relationship, and God would be if it's the right kind of relationship, then God may need to be patient, to have people 
come to realization that they have a need for God. In fact, Jesus told a parable about this, didn't he, in uh, Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal, where the prodigal goes away and the father waits at home. And finally, the prodigal comes to his senses and gets tired of eating the pig's food and decides he's going to go home to his father. And when the father sees him coming, he then runs to him and gives him uh, a pair of sandals, a new ring, throws a party for him. But it's a case of the waiting father. The father waits for the son to come to his senses, the parable says. So yes, God is perfectly loving, but that doesn't mean that God is going to make himself available to us under all circumstances. Remember, God must sustain moral perfection, what's best for us, as well as what honors God's perfect character. That means we aren't going to have any simple recipe that says, well, if God exists, he's going to be uh, readily available to everybody at every time. And if he isn't, then God doesn't exist. That argument just doesn't work if you think about what it is to be perfectly loving. Or if you've been a parent and you've had to raise children, you know that you can't cheapen yourself by compromising your moral character for the sake of just interacting with a person. You must uphold the moral goodness for everybody involved. And that means the evidence in question is not going to be cheap and easy. It may mean that I need to give up a lot of my antecedent purposes and desires I may need to have a change of life direction, uh, at least be willing to have one, uh, for God to make a difference in my experience. Now, I claim that the role of God in experience is crucial. If we can't find God in experience, we should scrap the whole project of theology. It's then just one big fairy tale. So I claim we need to look carefully to our experience for God's intervention. And I claim that the role of human conscience and moral conviction in conscience is a vital indicator of God's active role in human experience. But we must be cooperative. God isn't going to come into conscience and coerce us. We must be highly sensitive to the nudges and pressures in conscience to move away from selfishness, even toward our enemies, to be loving even toward our enemies. And so my moral experience becomes the center for my relevant evidence of God's existence. So would that be a sort of an argument from the existence of a moral experience to, to God, would that be sort of well, like that's the way natural, some, the, natural yeah. theology move? Some philosophers go there. I claim that's a big mistake. I claim that God is okay. self-authenticating in experience, that if God exists, there would be no higher standard or even equal standard 
to measure God by. God would be sui generis. God would be one of a kind, unique, and therefore God would have to be self-authenticating. And that's why you get that stuff in the Old Testament and the New about God swearing by his own name. God couldn't find anybody else to swear by, so he swore by his own name to ratify his promise. And that's because God would be uniquely perfect. And therefore, I claim God in experience is self-authenticating. God doesn't need an argument. God shows up in experience and presents God's moral character by giving us in experience a sense of moral perfection a challenge to move in that direction, away from selfishness. And I think anybody who lives a moral life is going to grant that conscience has a role here. I mean, it wakes us up at 3 a.m. I mean, at least it should. And, and so anybody with a conscience is going to know it's active. The only question is, is conscience just a social construct? Do we get it just from our parents and our friends? Well, my own parents and friends weren't morally perfect. I don't know about other people. So I can't reduce my experience in conscience to my parents and friends and what they taught me. And therefore I claim we have in conscience, if we're attentive to it, we have to cooperate and be sensitive. We find there salient evidence of God's active reality in our lives. No argument needed to have that evidence. Now, I might need to construct an argument in a different setting for somebody else, but I claim that ultimately the evidence is foundational because it's non-propositional, involves the presentation of God's moral character, and uh, doesn't need uh, anything like an argument of natural theology. So would this be similar to... Uh... Plantinga's reformed epistemology, where we not can at have, all, no, not at no, all. I don't think it's similar at all because that's a whole story about um, um, we have a certain um, kind of belief that has a status, and we don't need a response to the skeptic. Um, I'm invoking a kind of religious experience that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans five that um, is indicated uh, by other writers in the New Testament, John's Gospel. In um, John 16, you get talk of the convicting of the Spirit. So this is, a, this is an appeal to religious experience that goes all the way back to the New Testament and has been widely neglected by philosophers. Um, okay, so it's I, I find it interesting that you that you distinguish this view um, from Plantinga so sharply. In that, yeah, I, I hear where uh, terms like foundational and non-propositional, and it sounds like um, Plantinga, when he's saying that the, you know theistic beliefs can be rational in the sense that they're properly basic. And so that, that we don't need the arguments of natural theology in order to authenticate the, the religious experiences that we have and take them to be true. Separate no, I don't, I don't think that. any beliefs are properly basic. I think that's just a confusion. Um, beliefs okay. aren't basic. Beliefs depend on evidence, and the evidence is experience. So I'm a foundationalist. I'm an evidentialist. And Al is a moving target over the years. I mean... 
he's got the properly basic stuff and he's got the proper function stuff but all along he's refused to say anything that could challenge a skeptic i'm also an abductivist i endorse inference to the best explanation is the way to challenge skepticism so i pretty much have nothing in common with his approach to um religious belief and its epistemology uh, he rejects evidentialism he rejects foundationalism he rejects abductivism my account endorses all of those and it, it's the center those are the center of the account and so you resist that new that that sort of approach in order to have substantive responses to skeptics or am exactly I for me for me skeptical questions drive the show i think they're vitally important they demand answers you can't brush them off in the way l does by saying well you know the new testament doesn't talk about needing to test for truth um, well it actually does it tells us in first john to test the spirits to see if they're from god and that's a test for truth not just a test for reformed rationality which your peers allow you uh, to hold or anything like that, which your proper basicality community lets you get away with. That's not what it's about. It's about testing for truth, for reality. And if First John, um, we're told to test for um, the spirits to see if they are from God, that is to see if they're genuine. And that's a test for truth. So very different approaches um and um now admittedly at one time he held that natural theology was not needed or perhaps not even relevant to the project but he's changed his view even on that he now thinks there are good arguments of natural theology i don't think there are any i think they're all bad uh from traditional natural theology because i've argued they don't give us a god worthy of worship they give us at most some lesser God, and it isn't clear how we're gonna get from that lesser God to a God worthy of worship. There's not even a hint of how you're gonna make that move um, if you start with natural theology. I've heard so, that called the gap problem, whereas you could take something like a cosmological argument or a teleological argument, and you could get this first cause designer but it doesn't establish any moral properties or properties of worthy of worship. Is that what you're... Yeah, I call it the God-light problem. Natural theology gives you at best God-light, God with a small g, God-L-I-T, like Miller Light, you know, like the beer. Yeah, sure. <laughs> with an inadequate <laughs> amount of alcohol uh, in some light beer. Uh, that's what natural theology gets you at best. I don't think it gets even that, but suppose it did. How are you going to get from God light to God big G? And my claim would is... Would that be the same for something happen. like an ontological argument? So I've always... Um, yeah, even I, I claim that fails on, on a, a slightly different ground. I don't think it gets you there. But I claim that that um, just confuses the requirements of a concept and the requirements of extra conceptual reality. And you're not going to bridge that chasm uh, certainly by conceptual means. So I claim that argument uh, isn't going anywhere. Okay. Um, and that's, uh, that's in the Evidence for God book, and the stories continued in that um, 
chapter, uh, book of the cha chapter of the book I sent you, um, the God relationship book. The God so, relationship. That's your new book, I to, correct? I have to, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about that. So this is this is latest work for you. This is going to be coming out when? That one is out. Yes, uh, and that's an Excellent. attempt to look at um, what God would want if God is worthy of worship and perfectly loving. And the claim is God would want a certain kind of relationship. And so the book asks, well. If that's so, how does it bear on evidence? What would evidence look like if God was after this kind of relationship? What would be the implications for skepticism, for what some people call apologetics? What would be the implications for the meaning of life? And one of the big claims of the book is that God would have uh, what we might call the ethics of inquiry regarding God. God would want people to get in line with certain normative standards, even in inquiring about God. And it tries to identify what those are and then tries to spell out uh, how they bear on a number of big topics um, in the philosophy of religion. So taking this whole framework that you've laid out in this book and given the, uh, your approaches to the hiddenness argument. One of the things in my deconversion and one of the things that Schellenberg had emphasized were former believers and mm -hmm. lifelong seekers. These two categories of pe you know, people who, who believe they were in a relationship with God and have ceased to be in a relationship with God or this other group of people who spend their entire lives trying to find that relationship with God and, and, and fail to, to find that relationship. Do, do these two categories of people create tensions within what you've laid out, or do you, do you see them as problematic, or do you see them as not so much of a problem? Well, they're problematic in that I find them um, sad and disappointing if a person says, you know, I'm really looking for God and says that sincerely. Um, and, but I can't find God. I, I'm, I find that sad and disappointing. I mean, the person's looking for something valuable and um, can't find it. And um, it's like losing a gold coin and wondering where is it. And that's, that's sad and disappointing. But what I always want to ask is, if we could slow down and spell out what we're talking about here, in particular, what kind of God? is being sought, and on what conditions? What are the um, terms for seeking and finding this God? And there we need to be careful because um, the God in question is going to have expectations and standards and features very different from us. And this is a, a crucial topic because it enables us, I think, to what I'll say deflate the problem of evil because once we see that God's exalted standards as perfectly good pose a real challenge for us from where we start and from how we proceed, we can then be a little more modest in 
our pursuit of God's reality. We can then say, this could be a turbulent effort. This could turn me inside out. This could turn me upside down too. So I, I want to be very careful on what kind of God we're seeking and what kind of God we've given up on. I've probably given up on that kind of God too. So for example, John Schellenberg's God, I say somewhere, is a lot like the doting grandparent. Uh, that's probably in that Blackwell exchange we had, but his God sounds like a kind of grandparent who would show up with cake and cookies to everybody and, and act as if everybody is just you know, a three-year-old eager to eat cake and cookies. And I think that's a distortion of the reality God faces in humans, and it's a distortion of God's character. God would show up at the right time in certain ways that leave ordinary humans undone because of the moral depth of God's reality and how that challenges us. Um, so we're rather like Peter. There's this um, crucial story in Mark 8, maybe you've read it, at Caesarea Philippi. Um, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's going to go up to Jerusalem and be killed. Do you remember that story at all? It's also in Matthew's gospel. Matthew I do. repeats Mark. And granted, it's been it's been several years. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, see, people people don't appreciate um, how profound the lessons of Jesus are for the philosophy of religion. They, even philosophers don't who are Christians. So he tells him he's going up to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed, and Peter says to him, he rebukes him. He says, "No, you're not." This isn't going to happen. You're, you're just not going to go up there and, and be killed. And he's saying, in effect, because your God's appointed one. And Jesus says to him, maybe um, you don't remember this. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. And um, this is in Mark and in Matthew. And um, what he's saying is your attitude is adversarial to God. He says, you mind the things of man and not the things of God. Well, this is a common human situation in all of us, that when we take up a question about God, we bring the terms down to our level, which is often morally inferior, inadequate relative to God. And so we need a kind of moral correction in how we set the terms of the discussion. If we don't do that, we're just gonna kick God out the door easily. And I claim that's what John does in his hiddenness stuff. He sets up a notion of God that, sure, if, you get, if I accept that view of God, I kick God out the door too. But I think that's a misleading conception of God. And that's why I say we must get clear on our conception of God and what God's expectations would be. Now, I don't mean anything uh, twisted here, like God has a notion of goodness that has nothing to do with ours. I'm just saying it's an exalted notion of goodness that humbles us in the way that you see in the book of Job, when Job says, oh, I didn't know what I was talking about. These things are too wonderful for me. And Paul says uh, in Romans 11, that um, that the judgments of God 
uh, are beyond us. They have a depth uh, that um, goes beyond our um, ordinary reflections. So this is um, dangerous territory because how we set up the conception of God is going to determine where we're going to end up. And if we don't do it right, we will kick God out the door. I would too. Well, I certainly agree with you in uh, the emphasis that you put on the concept of God. One of the things that I press a great deal is uh, obviously God's perfect love, but also the property of being worthy of worship. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what the implications would really be if there was a divine being of this sort. I hear people all the time casually make the remark, oh, well, I wouldn't want there to be a God. And I kind of, I it, 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 it kind of strikes me as odd because I think for what you just, what you were just getting at, they have, they must have some misleading or false or um, erroneous concept of God. Cause if we're talking about being who is unsurpassably loving mm-hmm. and totally worthy of our worship that we could spend an infinite amount of time with ever growing deeper into relationship with, of, of course, we would we would want a being like this to exist. So it, it always strikes yeah. me as odd when someone says, "Oh no, I wouldn't want there to be a god." Yes. Um, so 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 people who are uh, like you know former believers and lifelong seekers that are taking this concept of God seriously, um, mm-hmm. I, I like to think that I'm I'm among uh, that that group of people. What advice would you give atheists and skeptics and yeah. People like that who, who acknowledge they would want theism to be true. What kind of advice yeah. would you give to them? Yeah, good question. Um, let me come back to um, your puzzlement over the people who wouldn't want it. You know, Tom Nagel says he wouldn't want God to exist. I want, wouldn't want a universe like that in his book, The Last Word. Yes. I, I don't the last want word, great book. Um, and he seems to say that because he thinks it would infringe on his autonomy so that if there were this kind of God, you'd have a God who would tell you uh, certain things about what's good and bad, right and wrong, and so on. And he seems to think, maybe in some kind of Kantian mode, that if that doesn't come from myself, it uh, infringes on my autonomy in a way that's not good. So I don't want God to exist. I don't want a universe like that. I think that's why he says that. I, I interpret it, and I I'm, I'm, might very well be mistaken on this, is that he thought that we would never be, that the explanation for, you know, why there's anything or why the universe is as it is will forever be beyond our reach in that it will be within the intentions of an agent that we could not ourselves know about. And so he did, he wouldn't want the ultimate explanation to be like that, but I hadn't hmm. thought of it from, from what you just said. In yeah. Check word. out, check out the, the last word book. I think there it's yeah. more a matter of ethics and autonomy um, where he says that I, I wouldn't want a universe like that. Okay. Cause I've um, read mind and cosmos a good uh-huh. deal and yeah. I, I have the last word, but you know, I've yeah. read it. I have a bad habit when I read philosophy books to read and, parts here and there. <laughs> no, that's a good habit. That's a good <laughs> um, But anyway, so 
clearly everybody's in a situation of the best they can do is, is seek God, and it is an ongoing endeavor for everybody um, because God is not a commodity to be captured, retained, and possessed. God is moving ahead of people and drawing them deeper into um, moral depths of goodness. And so that's a process that's ongoing and it's uh, uh, continuing. So even people who claim to know God are at best works in progress. They can't, at least if they're honest, um, be smug about having found God and uh, retaining God and possessing God. It doesn't work that way. Uh, God is too profound to become a commodity for a human. That would put us in the position of God. So I think that this idea of, well, how do we seek? I think that applies to everybody, not just those who have uh, changed their mind or um, who have given up on God. It's a, it's something that should be available and considered by everybody, ongoing seeking in agreement with God's moral character if God exists. And one needs to be utterly candid about one's experience. Do we find in experience glimmers of an outside challenge from an agent nudging us toward uh, deeper unselfish love? And if we do, are we willing to take that seriously instead of taking self-credit for it? Uh, if we take self-credit for it, we won't leave any room for God. And God isn't going to coerce us to acknowledge God's existence. But that would gain nothing. And in the end, and this is a crucial point many people miss, in the end, God's main concern is not belief that God exists. It's not something merely intellectual of that sort. It's our deepest attitude toward God's character de re rather than de dicto, that is, as a reality rather than propositional content. And so God would be pleased if somebody who has never thought of God is responding to God positively. Say somebody in an isolated setting who's never even heard of God, but has responded to the nudges from God in a positive way by becoming less selfish more caring toward others, that, was, uh, that would be something that the New Testament calls being led by God's Spirit, even when one doesn't know it. In other words, it's de re and doesn't have to be de dicto. You know that language, de re, D-E-R-E? Yes, yes. Concerning reality. And it may not have a propositional content in the mind of the person who is yielding to God. So God would be more profound than giving an intellectual test or more profound than just, do you believe that God exists? Maybe you remember in Matthew 25, Jesus told a story about this uh, where at the last days, these people will come and uh, this is a judgment and he's wrapping things up and these people come and, and, and Jesus says, you know, well, you know, enter the enter the kingdom of my father. Um, you've uh, you're blessed uh, by him, and so on. And they say to him, "Well, 
when did we do any of these things that you're suggesting we did? You know, we 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 didn't respond to anyone named Christ. We didn't we didn't do anything to him or people who are his followers. Uh, we didn't do any of that. And and Jesus responds by saying, "Well, when you did it to these here, you were doing it to me." And and the suggestion is, even if you didn't know it, he's pointing then to their attitudes and behavior and not their intellectual content. So. We people who are overeducated put too much emphasis on the intellectual content, whereas God would look at the deepest motives I have and which direction they're going in. Do they fit God's character? Do they conflict with it? That's where God would work in leading people. And so, <coughs> excuse me, the important thing is you ask, what about, um, what do we do if? Um, we haven't found this God. The important thing is the process to continue living and moving in the direction of God, of what would be God's character as I understand it. That's what faithfulness to God is, even if one doesn't believe that God exists. You don't have to believe that God exists to be faithful to God. But that point is lost on many people. A person can be faithful to God in a way that pleases God, even if that person does not believe that God exists. So an atheist can be more faithful to God than a theist. And I think in some cases that's true. Dr. Moser, my audience would be super disappointed in me if I didn't ask something about the problem of evil. And I know this is always, this is the question that, it's, it's, I've wrestled with it myself. Um, yeah. I always encourage my fellow skeptics and atheists and even uh, my, you know, my theistic friends, you put yourselves in the shoes of a theist and try to answer the problem of evil as best you can. Mm-hmm. And I've always come back to John Hick. John Hick, it was just, he was, he was the theist that just always had a huge impression on me. Mm-hmm. And I was soul building mm-hmm. and a universalist <laughs> conception of yeah. heaven. Yeah. And so those were my best attempts mm-hmm. at answering the problem of evil. So I'm going to be a little selfish and ask mm-hmm. the universalist question. If you're a universalist about salvation or, or about heaven and if, if so, or if not, you know, what is your general approach to the problem of evil? Uh, I'm glad you asked because I'm uh, finishing a paper on this now that, um, I think takes a, a new perspective. It's called um, The Odyssey Meets Christology, and it looks to um, some of the lessons from Jesus in light of the book of Job to um, give us a response. But regarding universalism, I'm an aspiring universalist. I want it to be true. Uh, but <laughs> notice, so does God, if God is real. It's just that God can't settle that matter. If God acknowledges free agents and honors their freedom, in choosing regarding God, God can't say, oh, everybody's going to come around. Some may not. Tom Nagel says he won't. I have a friend. He's a, he's a very sharp philosopher. He claims that um, he's an atheist. He says if he comes to find that God exists, he'll kill himself. And he's told me that directly. And even after endless discussion on all the ins and outs, 
He says, I don't want, uh, I don't want that. I'll kill myself. Now, some people are going to take that option. And so you can't say uncritically universalism is true because it depends on free human agents. And you and I can't say what they'll do in the end. Some of them say they're going to end their lives. They don't want to be in the party. Uh, and I can't change that. that. That's up to them. So I'm an aspiring universalist. I want it to be that way. And God would too. But it's not in our hands. The um, problem of evil, there is no such thing as the problem of evil. There are many problems, many different problems. There are logical versions, there are epistemic versions, there are psychological versions. There's a thicket of problems, and they need to be sorted out. And once they are, the question is, do humans have a theodicy that is a full explanation of why God allows evil? And um, should they expect to have one? And I claim the answer is no in both cases. We don't have a full explanation of why God allows evil. And then here's the key point. We shouldn't expect to have one. I can't even explain what my own daughters will do tomorrow. I mean, I have cognitive limitations that are pretty severe. And so when I come to the issue of God and what he's going to allow and has allowed and why, I'm not going to be able to answer unless God tells me. Where, where else could I get the answer? I can't just think it up. I can't read it off of nature. So if God doesn't tell me God's purposes in allowing evil, I'm going to have an inadequacy. And so the question is, should we expect God to reveal God's purposes in allowing evil? And the first response there is, well, you know, it really wouldn't help me out much to know why God allows evil because I still need to endure it. I still need to go through it. I need to be empowered and sustained in evil to make it through. And that's very different from having an intellectual answer. And I think God is more interested in the latter than in the former, namely having the power to endure evil for the sake of good instead of having an intellectual explanation. And then the second point, should we expect to be able to understand adequately God's purposes in allowing evil? Well, maybe if we have a small God, maybe if I have a God who's a lot like me, who has pretty much the intellectual ability of mind, maybe multiply it by 10 or 20 and, okay, that's God. But what if God is morally profound beyond me in ways that leave me shaken? surprised, puzzled. That's the God of Job. That's the God of the Apostle Paul, where they look at this problem and they say, in effect, I was a fool to think that I could understand your ways in allowing suffering and evil. It, it's, your, your project is just too wonderful. And that's what you get too with Peter and Jesus at Caesarea Philippi in Mark 8, where Jesus doesn't give him, uh, Peter, an answer uh, in terms of God's purposes. He just says, in effect, you have an adversarial attitude here. In effect, you don't understand 
what God's ways are. And so Peter would have said to Jesus, you're not going to the cross. And if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, then God's demonstration of divine love is hindered significantly. So my point is, it is naive of us to think that we should have anything like an adequate explanation of why God allows evil. We aren't in that moral position. We are so inferior to God's moral goodness, we wouldn't adequately understand God's ways in that regard. I'm claiming that's required by cognitive modesty and uh, candor about our moral situation. So the problem of evil then, and there are many of them, um, should always be related to who's asking, what's my moral situation? Is it up to God's? And if it isn't, if I don't have the relevant moral experience, I'm going to be at a big disadvantage. I'm not going to be able to handle this question adequately. I'm going to be stumbling into it, and I may not be able to handle the answer of why God allows this. That's the lesson of Job. It's the lesson of Jesus, and it's the lesson of the Apostle Paul. I see no way to uh, refute that approach. One of my aims in the Real Atheology Project is to look at concepts of the divine and religious experience that are non-theistic. Um, and I, when I, in my own answering these religious questions, I always come back to Taoism and pantheism and mm -hmm. even Stoicism mm -hmm. in a way. What are your attitudes towards these traditions? Do you see them as compatible with your own, or do you see them as incompatible and antithetical to a search for God? Well, uh, if God is real, God is the God of all people. And so God would be the God even of the Taoists, the Confucianists, the Buddhists, who don't acknowledge a personal God. Some Buddhists do, but most Buddhists don't acknowledge a personal God. I don't think the Gautama Buddha acknowledged a personal God. Um, so, uh, but God would still be the God of everybody. And therefore God would seek to um, work in the lives of those people. And I think God does de re rather than de dicto. In other words, as a reality challenging these people, even if they don't believe it. So those positions even if they say things incompatible with truths about God, would allow for the advocates of those positions being challenged and formed by God under God's influence. And what that means is this, the people endorsing those positions wouldn't be excluded, even if they are mistaken in claiming that God doesn't exist, that there's no personal God, and so on. And I would claim that the moral experience they have in being challenged and led in a certain direction is intentional and gives evidence, therefore, of a personal God interacting. Because uh, a personal agent is an intentional agent. And when you see evidence of intentional leading in a certain direction, in conscience, for example, that's evidence of God's work in one's life, even if one doesn't 
state that, even if one doesn't have the predictive content. And that's the view that I try to develop in the God relationship. Uh, there's an older book that uh, nobody reads, but it's free on, uh, on um, Internet Archive. It's by um, a philosopher uh, from Wisconsin, now deceased, Campbell Garnett, called A Realistic Philosophy of Religion. And he tries to identify in moral experience the way God would work in human life. Um, and the book, as I say, got virtually no attention uh, and certainly today is completely ignored. But his point is that if you look at certain activity and moral experience, you see God at work. And I'm adding the story, even if people don't acknowledge it. So you could be a Confucianist, a Buddhist who isn't a theist, a Taoist. Uh, but God could still be at work in your life, and you could be responding in the right way. Your intellectual views would need correction, but so what? They don't drive the show in the end. Something deeper does. Okay. Um, I always like to end on a fun question. Um, and this one is, if you could recommend only one philosophy of religion book or article which would it be? I always cite David Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion. And so I always love to hear what people's response to this question is. I think the best epistemology, and for me, philosophy of religion and philosophy requires a good epistemology or everything is lost. The best epistemology you're gonna find uh, is in the writings of the apostle Paul. And I think his letter to the Romans contains the heart of the epistemology we need, especially Romans 5 through 8. And I would urge people to learn that inside and out because Paul was a profound thinker, even though he was a missionary and not a philosopher. Um, if you want a philosophy book and not uh, the Apostle Paul, then I would um, urge that people look at that uh, Campbell Garnett book, that uh, a realistic philosophy of religion. It's free on Internet Archive. You can download it. And uh, chances are um, you'll be the only person you ever meet uh, who has uh, read the book. Uh, it's just widely neglected, but he's pointing to the crucial role moral experience in evidence for God. Not a moral argument. This is firsthand moral experience. It's unique and it's challenging. the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. The Real Atheology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane. Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Paul Pinos, Kim Bushkowski, Andrew Snyder, Jason McLeveto, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Stone.